Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, August 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, where the candidates will stand on the debate stage and why, which voter coalitions support each of the top three candidates, a look at one Democrat who is running for Senate in Montana, Biden's mixed-up recollection of a war story, Gabbard says she will not run as an independent, Walsh says he might run as an independent, and a Canada anecdote from Harris. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, we now have the physical lineup for the candidates on the stage for September 12th. By the way, I neglected to mention that the debate is scheduled for three hours, running from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern that night. So, you know, Friday morning may be planned to sleep in. Anyway, here is how the candidates will be placed from left to right in their row of podiums. Klobuchar, Booker, Buttigieg, Sanders, Biden, Warren, Harris, Yang, O'Rourke, and Castro. So this lines up with data we already have. The highest polling candidates lately are in the middle, Sanders, Biden, and Warren, in that order from left to right. So Biden will essentially be in a competitor sandwich there, and this is also the first time we'll have Warren on any debate stage with Biden. That's important because that pair has a history of tangling over bankruptcy legislation way back in the day. So expect conflict on that issue, and if you want more detail on the history there, check out the show notes for a whole story about that. Okay, so how was this placement figured out? Well, reading from Ed Kilgore's piece in New York Magazine, it was, quote, based on candidate polling rank in the last 10 surveys treated as qualifying by the Democratic National Committee, end quote. This is notable for fans of Andrew Yang, who has been doing better in polls more recently and thus is lined up with Buttigieg in a third from the outside position. Not a bad place to be given this field. Kilgore also notes the challenges that this one-night, three-hour event will face in primetime. Quote, The debate will compete for viewers with Thursday night NFL and college football broadcasts, but at least the one-night format will preserve Friday night for non-political pursuits. End quote. This morning, Amy Walter wrote a polling analysis for the Cook Political Report. In it, she analyzed the detailed data from six recent national polls digging into the crosstabs. By the way, this gives me a moment to define that term, which you may have heard polling folks talk about. Crosstab is short for cross-tabulation, and is a kind of chart where, in the kind of polling we're talking about, shows the breakdown of how people answered by the subcategory that they belong to. The subcategory could be age, could be political party, could be race, could be whether they watch the debate, lots of stuff like that. So what Walter was looking for was demographic subgroups within the Democratic crosstabs and which candidates they preferred. She wanted to know, for instance, in the age groups or racial groups, how are the people in these groups responding to certain candidates, rather than just the overall top-line number who say, yeah, I'd vote for so-and-so. In the crosstabs, you can dig into how many people under age 50 would vote for so-and-so, and stuff like that. I should also mention, there can be some peril in diving too deeply into the crosstabs of these polls, because sometimes the sample size is so low that they give you a skewed view. So Walter took the crosstabs from six large national polls in an effort to get this data, and also to see whether those results differed based on the poll. Alright, so what did Walter find? Well, reading from her analysis, quote, In looking across the six polls, some clear patterns emerge, as does Monmouth's outlier status. Biden is strongest among older, African-American, and moderate-slash-conservative Democratic primary voters. 
Sanders is strongest among younger voters, while Warren is strongest among the most liberal voters and those with a college degree. That's not a new discovery, of course. What was striking, however, is how consistent these coalitions were among all the different polls, regardless of what the head-to-head poll numbers showed. Well, except for Monmouth. What also stuck out to me was the size of the lead candidates held in certain demographic groups. For example, while Sanders does best among younger voters, he doesn't rack up the large margins with those voters that Biden does among older voters. Scroll along the age breakouts in the chart, and you see Biden with double-digit leads among voters over 45 years old. Meanwhile, Sanders' lead among 18- to 34-year-olds is in the single digits. In the Quinnipiac poll, for example, Sanders takes 31% to Warren's 25%, and Biden pulls up with just 10%. But among those over the age of 65, Biden has an almost 30-point lead over his closest competitor, Warren, while Sanders sits at just 4%. End quote. Walter made a composite table that helps show these specific trends, and in that table she compares the relative size of each subgroup to how those groups voted in 2016. Meaning, if you say, hey, what's the overall percentage of Democratic voters who are aged 18 to 34? Well, we have those numbers from 2016. So she uses those as a baseline to estimate the makeup of the possible 2020 voting group. So check out that article and that graphic, there's a link in the show notes, as always, for a useful analysis of how ideology, age, and race play into how folks plan to vote. At least, how they plan to vote right now. Picture this. You listen to a podcast every day to learn more about an election that won't happen for more than a year. And you probably do this because you care, because it matters. And honestly, sometimes the news you hear is not going to make you happy. Some of it's going to be stressful, and the entire thing, the entire election, is a huge question mark that will not be resolved until a year from November. So, what do we do, my friends? What do we do in this strange circumstance? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I am using an app on my phone called Simple Habit. It helps me relax, it helps me take the edge off, and it helps me accept that this stress is all right. I can let go of it as long as I am aware of it. Simple Habit is free to use. You can download it and it's free. There are hundreds of sessions right in there for free. But there are thousands more sessions if you plop down just a few bucks. I want you to go to simplehabit.com ride. The first 50 listeners who sign up for a paid plan there will get 30% off. Now you gotta use that link. It's the first link in the show notes. Again, that is simplehabit.com ride to get the discount and let them know you came from this show. So one last time, the first 50 listeners who go to simplehabit.com slash ride are going to get 30% off. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. After Montana Governor Steve Bullock made it very, very clear he will not run for Senate in Montana, the natural question arose, well, okay, who will? There's a race there against incumbent Republican Steve Daines, and while flipping that seat is really a stretch goal, you know, it is technically possible. 
And thanks to a listener, I have been introduced to Wilmot Collins, who is one of the Democratic primary candidates in that field. He faces right now at least two opponents to get to the general election, but I found his story to be unusually inspiring. Collins is a refugee from Liberia, who is currently the mayor of Helena, Montana. Prior to this year, he identified as an independent, but he is now running as a Democrat. He narrowly won that mayoral election against a 16-year incumbent with 51% of the vote, and that made him the first black person ever to become mayor in any city in Montana since it has been a state in the union. Now, technically, trivia time, there was one black mayor in 1873, but that was back when Montana was still a territory, not a state. Anyway, fun fact, moving on. Collins came to the U.S. in 1994, fleeing the first Liberian Civil War in which two of his brothers were killed. His wife made the same journey two years earlier, and at the time, she was pregnant with their daughter. She had managed to get to Montana thanks to a connection with a family she had lived with there as an exchange student back in high school. Collins's first time seeing his daughter was two years after his pregnant wife left for the U.S., and obviously she had given birth in Montana without him. Collins started working as a janitor, but six months after arriving in the U.S., he joined the Montana Army National Guard. He served in the Army Reserves for a decade, then the Navy Reserves for eight and a half years. Meanwhile, he worked as a public servant for the Montana Department of Health and Human Services, and of course is now Mayor of Helena. Oh yeah, and both his wife and daughter also served in the military. This is all important because in Montana, there are a large number of veterans. Okay, now Collins is looking to take on Steve Daines. Here is Collins' announcement video. Listen in. A lot of people said it could never be done. A Liberian refugee who had skipped a civil war could never get elected to office. And certainly couldn't do it in Montana. They do not know Montana. And they do not know America. A country where if you dream and if you work hard, anything is possible. Now we have more work to do. Lobbyists are running the show in Washington, and they are leaving Montana families behind. It is left with us to fix it. I may not look nor sound like the regular politicians, but I'm a hard worker and I get things done. I've lived my life in service to the Montana. I provided my family a second chance and gave my family refuge. It is time Washington gets back to work to get America back to being the land of opportunities. Join me. So just to be clear, Montana is a purple state. One of the Senate seats is held by Republican Steve Daines, that's the one that's up in 2020, the other by Democrat John Tester, and of course Steve Bullock is a Democrat. The state went for Trump by just over 20 points in the previous cycle, but it's possible, albeit unlikely, that both Senate seats could turn blue with just the right candidate and just the right political moment. I haven't seen any polling on this primary race yet, but this is certainly a candidate to watch. As of the Q2 FEC filings, which included just about six weeks for Wilmot Collins to fundraise, the incumbent Danes had more than $3.5 million in cash on hand versus just over $50,000 for Collins. Still, I will be keen to see whether the power of his story can propel his campaign. Yesterday, the Washington Post reported on a war story that Joe Biden has been telling since 2008. 
The reporters there are Matt Weiser and Greg Jaffe, and the piece has a video at the top that kind of tells the whole story. I'm not going to play that here, in part because it's more than three minutes long, and also because there's a lot of text on screen that gives vital context to what is being said. The reporting revolves around a story Biden told on the campaign trail as recently as last Friday. It's about a time he visited the Konar province in Afghanistan and met with U.S. military forces who were on the front lines. The core of the story is essentially that the local commanding officer wanted Vice President Biden to present a silver star to a Navy captain who had tried to rescue an injured comrade from a deep ravine. But the injured soldier didn't survive, and in Biden's telling, the captain who had tried to rescue that soldier resisted the medal, saying he didn't want it because his fellow soldier had died. It's a touching story, it's gripping, and it humanizes the cost of war. The problem is, in multiple video accounts spanning more than 10 years now, you can see how the details of the story have shifted, and most drastically now in the telling from last week. Biden has repeatedly misstated the number of times he has visited that region, inflating that number more and more as time goes on. But that's more of a detail. The bigger problem is that this war story just didn't happen like Biden says it did. Reading here from the Post about last week's version of the story. Quote, Almost every detail in the story appears to be incorrect. Based on interviews with more than a dozen U.S. troops, their commanders, and Biden campaign officials, it appears as though the former vice president has jumbled elements of at least three actual events into one story of bravery, compassion, and regret that never happened. Biden visited Konar province in 2008 as a U.S. senator, not as vice president. The service member who performed the celebrated rescue that Biden described was a 20-year-old army specialist, not a much older Navy captain. And that soldier, Kyle J. White, never had a silver star or any other medal pinned on him by Biden. At a White House ceremony six years after Biden's visit, White stood at attention as President Barack Obama placed a Medal of Honor, the nation's highest award for valor, around his neck. The Upshot In the space of three minutes, Biden got the time period, the location, the heroic act, the type of medal, the military branch, and the rank of the recipient wrong, as well as his own role in the ceremony. One element of Biden's story is rooted in an actual event. In 2011, the vice president did pin a medal on a heartbroken soldier, Army Staff Sergeant Chad Workman, who didn't believe he deserved the award. In a statement Thursday, Biden's campaign spokesman Andrew Bates said Workman's valor was emblematic of the duty and sacrifice of the 9-11 generation of veterans, end quote. So check the link in the show notes if you want to read more or see the video, which lays it out piece by piece. The Biden campaign did not dispute the facts of the Post's reporting, though later the same day, Biden himself appeared in a Washington Post podcast called Cape Up and said in part, quote, I was making the point how courageous these people are, how incredible they are, this generation of warriors, these fallen angels we've lost. I don't know what the problem is. What is it that I said wrong? End quote. So the ongoing narrative of whether Biden's misstatements actually matter to voters, that continues to be debatable. It's clear that he did get the details very wrong on this one. But it's also clear that the point of the story was valid and important. But at a political moment when we call out political figures for saying things that are not true, I don't think we should be totally numb to the idea that truth matters. Specific truth in a story does matter. It would be relatively easy for Biden to say, essentially, yeah, I mixed up the details, but my point still stands. In fact, given what he has done in this campaign cycle so far, I wouldn't be surprised if he does just that next week, assuming anybody still remembers this after the holiday weekend. 
So for all the gaffes and stuff that have come up in Biden's 2020 campaign so far, nothing I've seen has actually hurt his frontrunner status. We will have to see if this one matters, but I suspect it will not. Okay, this is a quick one. In an interview on CNN, Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard explicitly ruled out the possibility of an independent run for president if she doesn't get the Democratic nomination. When asked directly about the possibility of an independent run, Gabbard said, quote, I will not. No, I've ruled that out. I'm going to continue to focus on moving our campaign forward, continuing this grassroots campaign, continuing to deliver our message to the American people and ask for their support, end quote. Meanwhile, Republican primary candidate Joe Walsh took the opposite position. When asked by Real Clear Politics whether he would consider some kind of independent or third-party run if he does not win the Republican primary, Walsh said, quote, Then, who knows? I think there is certainly room for a viable third-party challenge next year. End quote. All right, last up today, it is candidate anecdote time. Again, this is a new segment we'll run occasionally featuring candidates talking candidly about stuff that is not politics. And by the way, this might be the last such segment if I don't get any more listener suggestions of clips that might work here. So again, if you've got a video or an audio clip of a candidate telling a story that is just human and interesting, please send it along to me. There are a bunch of ways to find me on all the socials using the links near the top of the show notes. All right, today's short anecdote is from Senator Kamala Harris, and I just thought this was a delightful clip, a nice way to close out the week and head into a holiday weekend. This comes from an interview at the 92nd Street Y in New York City in January this year, where Harris was promoting her book, The Truths We Hold. She was speaking with Cleo Wade, and the subject of her marriage to Doug Emhoff and her in-laws came up. Okay, listen in. So when we met, and Doug's parents, and Doug's sister's actually here somewhere, um, Jamie, and and his parents have been married for decades upon decades and are still married, Mark, Mike, Mike and Barb. And, um, are they in New Jersey? Still? They are in California now, but New Jersey is very much in them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in a very big way, unedited. Oh, um, my God. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you, so you brought it up, I'm going to tell you it's not in the book. So the first time I meet my mother-in-law. <laughs> oh, this isn't in the book. So this is just Barbara Emhoff. So the first time I meet my, and then, you know, and they're originally from Brooklyn. Okay, so the first time I meet my mother-in-law, she looks at me, she puts my hand, my face in her hand. <laughs> so it's Barb and Mike, my father-in-law's Mike. She puts my face in her hand. She looks at me and she says, Oh, look at you. <laughs> you're prettier than you're on television. Mike, look at her. No. <laughs> I swear oh, to you. God. <laughs> well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, I am excited to get on with my three-day weekend. A little bit of yarding, a little bit of home improvement, and I hope a lot of relaxation. Maybe reading a book. I like books. 
I also realized that that CNN Climate Forum is actually on Wednesday, like, you know, this coming Wednesday. So maybe mark that on your calendars now if you intend to watch live. I'll cover it on the shows next week, but as you know, I guess don't make big Wednesday night plans if you want to watch that thing. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Tuesday. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.